Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It is crazy to say this, given all of the drama we have seen unfold off the court in Australia. But folks, we are less than five days away from the scheduled start of the 2021 Australian Open. Now, I say scheduled start because, of course, we learned over the past couple of days there was a positive COVID test at one of the player hotels. There are currently over 500 people associated with the Australian Open in contact tracing protocols. That means for now, we had a delay in something such as the release of the men's and women's singles draws. We were hoping to have those available before today's podcast, but it sounds for now like everything is scheduled to stay on track, and in the spirit of hoping that is the case, we figured we'd get into our Australian Open preview coverage, start talking about the dark horses, the contenders we think will come to defend find the first Grand Slam of the season. And folks, we have a fantastic first-time guest to talk about the Dark Horses heading into this Australian Open. You may know her voice as a commentator across multiple platforms throughout the professional tennis world. Abigail Johnson joining the show for the first time to break down the many categories of Dark Horses. And yes, folks, I say categories because, you know, there's no one definition. What is a Dark Horse? Is it an unseated player making the second week? Is it a lower-seeded player making a quarterfinal, semifinal run? Is it a first-time Grand Slam champion emerging. We talk about all of those things in this podcast on both the men's and women's side. And as such, we had to divide it into two parts, this conversation spanning about an hour and a half in total. Uh, So we figured we'd divide it into two, make it a little bit easier for all of you to consume. But folks, we talk about a ton of players. I mean, again, we talk about who the most likely first-time champions are. That means contenders from Medvedev to the Berrettini sort of type of player on the women's side so many different options and you know the non-top 10 players non-top 30 players you can pick a name out of a hat in the women's game you know in the men's game there's so many talented players currently trying to break through so again it's a really fun conversation I think it will help prepare all of you listeners for all of the action about we're about to see unfold and of course it will help prepare all of you to get in on that action with our friends at DraftKings I'm not going to read the full plug here today I'll save those for the GSP aces of the day which of course is where we make our picks and hopefully you're all following along with those each and every day hopefully you're making your selections along with us Uh, but of course if you want to get in on the action throughout this Australian Open be sure to turn to our friends at DraftKings but with that in mind let's get into our 2021 Australian Open preview content talking about the dark horses with the one and only Abigail Johnson on the podcast today to chat about all the action going on down under. You may know her as a freelance tennis commentator for the BBC, BT Sport, Amazon Prime Video, WTA TV, and Eurosport. I know her as Abigail Johnson. Abby, welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you. How are you doing today? Hi, Alex. Yeah, I'm doing great, and thanks for having me on. Looking forward to talking about an unpredictable Australian Open. Oh, that's half the fun. It's not every day I get to (laughs) speak with the star of the tennis vlog, so for me, this is a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to getting that going as well again during the slam when, Mm. when it gets going. 
No, absolutely. And we will all be looking forward to hearing that. And of course, uh, even before we get to what we're going to do today, which I talked about in the intro, which I recorded separately, but uh, obviously we're going to chat a little bit about the Dark Horses. Uh, but before that, there has been a lot that's unfolded in the past, even 48, 24 hours in Australia. We were hoping the draws were going to be released before we recorded this podcast. That got pushed back following a positive COVID test, not of any of the players, uh, but unfortunately. Unfortunately, of someone at the hotel, I believe the exact uh, person is. It was one of the. Uh, it was a quarantine after a hotel member of the staff. A, I think a single case at the quarantine hotel. Excuse me. That led to 507 players, uh, officials, and support staff to have to isolate. Obviously, that led to a cancellation of play on Friday as well. Uh, and it put or on Thursday. Excuse me. Whatever the date said. Everything screwed up. The point being, it screwed up the schedule moving forward and now we have a bunch of players who are in contact tracing who are being tested we're still waiting for those results but obviously they have six events they need to finish before we even get to the start of the Australian Open ATP Cup, the two ATP 250s, and then the three WTA 500s. My first question to you, what do you, what does someone who actually watches the tennis make of all the action down in Australia? Oh, it's crazy. It's chaotic. But can you expect anything less when you're staging tournaments during a global pandemic? I mean, a lot of the players, you know, some of them didn't know what they were letting themselves in for. They claimed with the hard quarantine for those who'd been close contacts on flights moving in. But I said the same with the Grand Slam tournaments that were staged last year. When you're competing during a global pandemic, you can't expect everything to run like clockwork these things are going to happen. You know, Australia have put in tremendously hard work to pretty much eliminate their coronavirus cases. And the extremes need to happen for them. You know, it's the government's call on a lot of these things and the players have to adjust accordingly. Is it ideal preparation for a Grand Slam? Absolutely not. And, you know, it it wasn't already. So to have this additional factor pushing things back, making sure that there's a lot of extra play for the competitors ahead of the Grand Slam. You know, that's not ideal for anyone. But if you want to compete, these are the conditions you have to do it under. And at this point, you know, with play being pushed back this week now, I think it does become more of a level playing field with the players that had to do the hard quarantine and weren't allowed to practice for the two weeks. So I'm not saying that's a positive, but I'm just saying that everyone has challenges they have to deal with at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that those are all fair points. And look, every sporting league that's come back across the globe uh, has had some number of positive tests in their initial return to play because all of these sporting leagues understanding they need to test uh, each every <coughs> excuse me member <laughs> of their team uh, and ensure that they are not acting as super spreaders that they have the virus under control. And it was somewhat encouraging is. Obviously, the wrong word, uh, inevitable, is too gloomy of a word. But, you know, it it was inevitable that someone would test positive upon arrival in Australia. And you have to give credit to Tennis Australia, to the uh, government in Australia. And ultimately, despite, you know, all of the complaining to the players for agreeing to uh, go into the hard quarantine, I think the final number was, what, 71, 72 players, and then agreeing to come out of that, trying to facilitate these warm-up events. The biggest question that comes out of this positive test, which was also inevitable, is what do you do with 
with these warm-up events, right? And at this point, the players who have reached these final stages, I think it's round of 16 for the men, quarterfinals for the women, like, have they had enough match play where you can justify saying, you know what, we're, I, I apologize, we're not going to finish these events, we're going to let you train the next few days, we're just going to move on to Australia. Do you try and finish those events given how limited uh, the opportunities for competition will be during 2021 because you never know when the next tournament's going to get canceled? Curious where you would rest on that issue. Yeah, it's a good question and it's a tough question because obviously the main goal for the players that have traveled to Australia is the Australian Open, but there's also the slightly lower ranked players who are not expected to go beyond the first couple of rounds. So for them, these warm-up events are a bigger deal in terms of the prize money, in terms of the match play. So you have to keep them in mind as well. But, you know, the Grand Slam, that's the pinnacle, that's the big event. And if you're playing so close to the beginning of that that it is going to hinder your performance there and your preparation i think a majority of players wouldn't be complaining if these pre-tournament events were brought to a halt because the whole reason they're being staged in the first place is so that the players aren't going cold into the australian open and like you've said yourself i think the majority of players maybe not the players that are playing the quarantine events that started midweek and got a buy in the first round but the majority of players have had at least a match or two and honestly ahead of a slam that should be enough i've always said when previewing slams before i don't generally rate the chances as high of those that have competed the week before a slam because at the end of the day for a lot of them it can total up to too much tennis and just you know the focus that's required is very demanding and obviously it's a different situation now everyone has to adjust but i don't think it's such a bad thing not to play so much the week before an event as big as a grand slam and to conserve some energy for that tournament that you care so much about Mm -hmm. and shameless plug here i had the chance to speak with bethany maddox sands on one of our other podcasts and one of the questions i wanted to ask her is what did you learn from your New York experience and how does that influence your preparation here in Australia? And, you know, we don't have to get into the nuances of each and everything that she said, but certainly she understands time on court is more valuable than anything else during this pandemic. And it's so funny to compare the two situations, right? Because in New York, we had multiple players testing positive during the event, or at least one player testing positive, multiple people in direct contact with that player. The event went on. It was just, look, we're finishing this U.S. Open. We're going to do what we're going to do. And obviously, uh, that was much a byproduct of the governments in charge of the United States at the time, as much as it was a decision by the U.S. Open. Um, But... You know, you for some of these players, like, you look who's still remaining in the draws, all of the ATP Cup guys, Medvedevs of the world, the Berrettinis of the world, the Djokovic's, their offseason wasn't hampered by the super quarantine. They've been in Australia for a while. They have their bearings under them, and they got to play two, three matches. And honestly, that, that's that's not enough. But that's a good amount. Now you have some time to rest the blisters and you know recuperate, work on the things you saw in your matches, all the little things in the buildup to the Grand Slam. So I think you try it, it, and to to what you mentioned about the lower ranked players. And by the way, some of this rambling for those of you listeners curious. I guess some of you listeners are used to my rambling. I apologize. <laughs> that's uh, that it's uh, it's a byproduct of these products, or I suppose a feature of these podcasts. Um, but 
you, you look for some of the lower ranked players who may, had you canceled the tournament from the beginning, be influenced. The Emil Rusevoris of the world, the Mikhail Torpegards of the world, the uh, Borna Gojos of the world who got a shot to play this event, they've already been eliminated. And so, respectfully, if it's the Novak Djokovic's of the world who most miss out on points and prize money by canceling the event, I think that's a sacrifice we're all willing to make to keep the Australian Open going on time. I will let you respond. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> no, I think um, yeah, good points. And I think an additional point as well is that the men in particular – even those top guys that are playing ATP Cup are not going to be wanting to compete too close to the Australian mm-hmm. Open starting because they have the best of five sets to deal with. Some of them are going to have some long, demanding contests over the next couple of weeks. And really, you know, it's not going to be satisfactory to have the tournament ended, but it's not going to be against their best interests at the end of the day, I don't think. You know, there will, you know, hopefully be more tournaments during the rest of the season. This isn't the end of the world, you know. And for all those guys, I would say pretty the, the majority of the guys playing ATP Cup, the singles guys anyway, the Australian Open is the goal. That's what they're here for. And, yeah, I don't think they kick up too much of a fuss if the, the worst came to the worst in that scenario. Do they get the opportunity to build the momentum they may otherwise? And we saw what that momentum did for Naomi Osaka, Victoria Azarenka, mm-hmm. Novak Djokovic before he hit a ball at an umpire. Um, and, you know, I guess everyone but Milos Raonic, really. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not going to have that opportunity if the events are canceled. That being said, according to Craig Tiley, who is it Thursday in Australia? I think it is Thursday in Australia. It's just almost Friday now in Australia. Uh, He made the comment that their plan, and there's rain in the forecast, but as of now, their plan is to continue the tournaments on Friday, play back-to-back matches if necessary. And as you mentioned, the concept of playing back-to-back matches on the Friday before a Grand Slam starts is nonsense. It's ludicrous, but whatever. That's the plan for now. Uh, The plan is to try and figure uh, finish up the ATP Cup and play the last four group sessions Friday, semifinal Saturday, final on Sunday, try and uh, stagger the starts for some of the players who are playing later later into the weekend for these warm-up events. I just feel like the simplest solution is to say, sorry, fellas, like we're going to have to let this one go. Maybe not the ATP Cup because that seems the easiest to facilitate and that's just sort of how tennis works because I feel like there are a lot more staked interests in the ATP Cup than the other events. But I do feel like the easiest solution would probably be to say, look, let's just reset. We have two weeks of Australia to go. Let's get everyone safely, everyone healthy to the starting line. Yeah, I get your point. Um, I, I definitely hear that. I think Craig Tiley, you know, he's worked so hard to facilitate this for the players. He's had those Zoom calls with them every single day during lockdown and seen, you know, the discontent. He's been the one that's dealt with all the issues, etc. And I think he'll be very determined to deliver deliver as high a quality of a program to the players as he possibly can. So I think given what they've already gone through in the quarantine, there will be that extra motivation to get the tournaments finished. I, like you, don't think it's the end of the world if they get cut short. And um, if, lest we forget, you know, Dominic team, I think, lost first round in the week before the US Open and then went on to win the tournament. So it is proof that these top guys don't necessarily need that momentum builder ahead of the event because best of five sets, 
that gives you a lot of time to get going within the tournament. So yeah, I don't, I don't think any of them will be too disgruntled if, if things get called to an early halt. But yeah, it looks like it, they will manage to finish things off. Mm-hmm. True story. Craig Tiley once sold sand in a desert. Uh, he could sell anything to anyone at any time. That's just his game. And so, uh, no, I warned you there would be corny jokes. That's number one. Put it on the board. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the goal is the Australian Open. And he, just one last note is Craig Tiley did say, even if a player does test positive as a result of this exposure to COVID, the the plan is for the tournament to carry on even with a positive test, assuming, again, it's just one positive. If the, that number spikes to, say, double digits, I'm sure then it's a whole different conversation. But let's assume that we are going to see the Australian Open start on time, that we are going to get to see the first Grand Slam of this 2021 season. There's a lot of intrigue heading into this Grand Slam because obviously we left 2020 in a very interesting place in both the men's and women's game. Now, of course, this is a hardcore Grand Slam, so I'm going to throw out the French Open for the men because everyone knows that's Rafael Nadal territory. (laughs) But of course, we saw our first non-Big 3 Grand Slam champion since Marin Cilic at the 2020 U.S. Open, as you mentioned, Dominic Team taking home the title, knocking off Lord Voldemort, he who shall not be named, in the final. Uh, of course, yeah, that corny joke number two, put it on the board. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, you know, uh, for the women's side, we saw Naomi Osaka remind everyone why everyone is so excited about her future. Uh, but you will sort of factor in the French Open for the women's side because Iga Swiatek, her breakthrough run, just how dominant she looked for Sonia Kennan, the defending champion, to make the final there. She has momentum on her side entering this event. But we don't want to talk about the top contenders. There'll be plenty of time to talk about them throughout the fortnight. We want to talk about the dark horses, some of the players who may make an unexpected run. And for all of you listeners, you guys know I like to make categories criteria. I did make some categories for today's exercise in terms of categorizing the different degrees of dark horse, because what does a dark horse really mean? It really depends on how you want to define it. We categorize them as the player most likely in the men's or women's draw to win their first singles grand slam. So does that include players like Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Rublev, Berrettini? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know Abby's list yet. She doesn't know mine. We'll figure it out as we go. Um, Of course, that is one category of dark horse. The other ones, non-top 10 players we think can make a deep run. That doesn't just mean, you know, hold seed. That means maybe make a quarterfinal, semifinal further than that. And then, of course, the non-top 30 players, the non-seeded players who we think can make the second week, maybe even go further than that. Of course, in any women's Grand Slam these past three seasons, you pick a name out of the hat, you can call that player justifiably a dark horse. So this is always a fun exercise for both the men's and women's. And we will try and keep it around an hour-long podcast. But, of course, I asked for five men, five women. Uh, I also created my list of five men, five women. We're probably not going to hit on all of them, but we'll see if there's any overlap. With that in mind, let's start with the probably sexiest category the most likely to win their first slam who is the player on the women's side first you are circling as most likely to win their first slam down under well there's nothing like going in at the deep end right let's start (laughs) with the women and the the total i mean you could legitimately look at that top 50 or so 
pick any name and make a decent argument for them because players like Iga Sviantek, yeah, I was deeply impressed by her level ahead of the French Open, but you could not have like written her down to steamroll through the way that she did. And that really made me put my guard up when it comes to predicting the women because I thought I'd kind of worked it out. I thought, okay, if it's not a lead contender, it tends to be someone that's kind of won a slam in the past or gone deep in the past, has kind of been out of form but uses their experience to drive through, which is why I actually thought Kenin might get that over Sriontek because she fitted that category. And when Sriontek won, I thought, okay, let's reconsider this for next time. <laughs> so, so we come in here... I've got a couple of names, and to be honest, I'm not sure on either of them, but are we sure on anything? So <laughs> go, going by the kind of rules that I set there, um, Maria Sakari is a name that jumps out. Um, I've been told it's Maria Sakari now. I've been calling her Sakari for years. What would you go with, Alex? So I, they put the pronunciations up on the WTA website, which okay. big props to them. That was a long time coming, and I believe she says it as Sakari. But okay. I had also been saying Sakari the entire time because <laughs> no one corrected me and i heard her referred to as sakari in a press conference and that seemed to be like there was a res- like a, a smile or like a yes you got that right and so i think that is the one uh and i okay. apologize to maria not that she's going to listen to this but i believe it is sakari that's an interesting pick i'm curious who are the other names you threw into this category you say you have a couple i want to know if we have any overlap yeah well i mean sakari i'm going to go with that pronunciation i'm gonna i'm gonna make myself adjust as we go along sakari um i mean sabalenka is an obvious name to some i'm i've not put her in there i'm just mentioning her because she would have been your obvious pick you know she's kind of one of the higher ranked players that hasn't won a slam has won her last three tournaments but in my opinion that makes her too obvious like who continues that streak all the way through a grand slam seven matches is a lot to maintain that form and focus so sakari is kind of the next down who's had a few wins over top players last year you know she beat serena nearly took her out at the us open uh beats vitalina she's had a few of those wins so it, it almost seems like the next step for her because for the wta players they kind of skip three rungs and win a grand slam title that's the way it goes you know so so she seemed like a contender but i also thought again you know when when we have an obscure player winning a grand slam outside of your top contenders they tend to be even more obscure than sakari i mean sakari whatever she (laughs) she's she's been you know a leading contender as a a giant slayer a a player who it has potential to upset for many last year so i dropped down even a bit further to elena rybakina who have we overlapped there or not Uh, you can see the smile on my face for you listeners who are hearing this obviously in podcast form uh you're not gonna know that we are doing this via zoom Oh, I, Sabalenka was the two obvious ones, so I wrote her down, but I wasn't going to bring her up unless you mentioned her. Sure. But both Sakari. So I have Sakari not in my category of potential winners, but in my category of non-top 10 players who I think can make the semifinals or further. And But I do have Elena Rabakina in my category, and I'm not saying she's going to win it because I do think that is a bit of a stretch. But I have her in this category. As someone who absolutely, if she's playing her best tennis, could win this event. And, you know, as always, I want to get into some of the numbers you see 
on tennis abstract with some of these players and you know tennis abstract is literally a godsend for all of us here who try to cover tennis and you look uh at you know they do their wta stats leaderboard which is a comparison of you know serve percentage one return percentage points one all the different first serve second serve ace percentage etc etc you look at all the numbers and i want i uh you know uh, i've narrowed it down to just the 2020 season by every metric elena rabakina was you know, if Iga Swiatek hadn't won a title, Elena Rabakina was my choice for Breakthrough Player of the Year. She was fourth, uh, tied for fourth in the WTA in wins last year. She was twenty nine and ten overall. You want to look at what she was doing so well to put herself in that position. She was a top ten server amongst WTA top fifty players in terms of serve points. One, you want to look even more granular than that. You look at her success she had on her first serve uh, in particular, and just her ability to set up various plus one shots her forehand the fact that she started off her season in such fantastic form for Rabakina she makes the final in the first week of the year she loses to Alexandrova she follows that up immediately uh, by winning a title and I believe in that title it was in Hobart over Shui Zhang she then uh, holds seeds at the Australian Open she makes that final in St. Petersburg follows it up right away with a final in Dubai I said this somewhat hyperbolic because that's just what I do here. Um, but <laughs> I think leg- you can make a legitimate case that through the Australian summer and the hardcore beginning of the 2020 season prior to play being stopped, she was certainly one of the 10 best and arguably one of the five best women on tour. And the thing that always jumps out about Elena Rabakina is just her power. And God, I... I have made this joke so many times, so listeners know it. <laughs> There's the power neighborhood, right? Serena Williams is the queen of power neighborhood. She gets to decide who lives in the neighborhood, and she has allowed Naomi Osaka. It's like, yep, you have we, you earned entrance. Your serve is the closest anyone has ever come in the women's game to matching mine. You've got the power you're in. Arena Sabalenka, she doesn't own it yet. As soon as she gets a Grand Slam title, they're going to let her in as well. <laughs> I think Rabakina is on that list too. Because, you know, at I think she's 21 years old, turns 22 later this year. She enters the year at number 19, which is two off of her career high of number 17. Again, you look at her last two seasons in tour-level matches, 23-10, and 29-11. I know she lost to Shelby Rogers at the U.S. Open uh, it back in, when was that, August, I guess. But you look at what she did in the Australian Open. She loses to Ashley Barty, but again, holds seed. I think this is the event where, you know, I saw her play that event in Abu Dhabi where she lost, She was the only person who even came close to touching Arena Sabalenka, and it was because she could match her stroke for stroke. And I just think if you can do that, if you can hit that top gear where it doesn't really matter how your opponent's playing, you are in the ball game. And I think Elena Rabakina is in the ball game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't add much to what you said. Yeah, that, well, that's because it was 12 there, but... <laughs> minutes. Yeah, that's, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. But I, I think you did touch on, without exactly saying it, you touched on why she's a contender for me, because she did drop off slightly at the back end of last year, which put her under the radar a little bit more than she would otherwise be. But you look back to this time last year, and certain players start to build up a rhythm with when they peak and when they bring their best tennis. And yeah, she had that terrific run in Hobart, and then it was only Ash 
Barty that stopped her at the Australian Open to this day. You know, Barty had those two set points over Kennan in the semis. I think she could easily have gone to win that title. So essentially, she almost lost to the, the eventual champion there. And I think another thing that's great about Rybakina, you know, you talked about her power. She's got such a clean strike, but also her mentality, her game face, I find so impressive because you can't read much from her body language, whatever the scoreboard is. And I think that's what you're looking for when you're looking for a Grand Slam contender because we see a lot of um, players with raw power, raw talents, but it's that fine line of combining that with a strong mentality and you know the ability to actually get through as well when you've not reached your peak stride because not everyone is going to reach their best for seven matches in the tournament and I think that Rybakina if she's not there yet is very close to getting that combination together and it will be interesting to see if she can take the opportunity of players not really having had the warm-up warm for the slam they would have liked and see if she can ride the momentum and use some of the good memories from last year to to take it to something special this time around. That last point is the final thing I want to touch on with Rubakina. To get back to the serving numbers, I mentioned 10th overall in terms of percentage of points won on serve. She was 10th in, eighth per, uh, in ace percentage, 8th in terms of uh, second serve points won, 12th in terms of first serve points won. When there's uncertainty heading into an event, when you don't have rhythm, you want to make things easy for yourself. And simply put, Elena Rabakina makes things easy for herself. And so it depends where she breaks out in the draw. She's not going to be a top 16 mm. seed, so her pathway is going to be tough. And you said it at the start. I very much agree with you. You look at the top 50 women, any of them can beat any of the others on any given day if they're playing their best tennis. But if it's a situation where the opponent's playing their best tennis and Elena Rabakina is playing their best tennis, you know, maybe five women, I'll take Elena Rubakina, and that's why I have her in that outside the top 10 conversation, someone who could make a semifinal. I just don't know if she can do it seven matches in a row yet, and that's why she's not quite top tier for me. Yeah, I understand Or, or excuse me, I, I, that's why she's floating in between. Yeah, no, I, I get your meaning, and I completely understand that. I was kind of swaying back and forth, but like I say, you know, Zachary, my first pick, but is she too obvious? And I think yeah. that is the main question you have to ask yourself <laughs> with the WTA these days. Is it too obvious? Because if it is, you're probably wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And look, I didn't mean to brush off the soccer comment because sure. I very much agree with you there. And the biggest takeaway for me in Abu Dhabi, and this is another thing uh, that deals with the uncertainty heading into this event. You know what I have no concerns about? Maria Sakkari is going to be fit as a fiddle. She's going to mm. be just fine, and she's going to be fine in match one. She's going to be fine in match five if she gets there. And you look for her, another player who just objectively has played better than her ranking over these last 52 weeks. And, you know, for her, you look at the results. Uh, she is 20-9 and nine in her last 52 weeks during that time. There's a St. Petersburg semifinal where she lost to, hey, Elena Rabakina. She's also lost to Sabalenka on three separate occasions, one of them in the Doha round of 16 obviously the Abu Dhabi semifinal, and then she lost to her another time, uh, I want to say, in Dubai in the first round for her last year. It was quarterfinals of the Western Southern Open where she beat Serena Williams. It was round of 16 where she lost to Serena. She's just such a tough out, right? And in Abu Dhabi, what was so striking, and this might have more to do with so Sonia Kennan than it does with Maria Sakkari, 
But there was just nothing Kennan could do to hurt Sakari. Like, throughout the entire match, it was played on Maria Sakari's uh, racket. And the way she's hitting her forehand right now, just playing so aggressive. I just don't know. Like, again, if if Sakari comes up against Sabalenka in the semifinal, that sort of implies that they're both playing their best tennis. Mm-hmm. I just take Sabalenka or Rabakina or, you know, Naomi Osaka in those situations just because they have a little more pop. Yeah, I think so. I also think, I mean, Sakari's a player that I've had an eye on for a number of years, actually. And I first noticed her on the grass courts, which is why I consider her a threat, you know, on the faster surfaces. Uh, She can utilize that, but I still think she can add more to her game. I still think there can be that, you know, that touch more versatility. And I'm not sure if she is quite there yet. I think... You know, you know, for your usual candidate for a debut Grand Slam titleist, she's up there. But yeah, I think yeah, we we might be waiting a little bit longer just to see her make her breakthrough because, as you say, there are so many other contenders. Mm-hmm. The one number for you on Sakari, she made on or she averaged sixty point eight with her first serve percentage last season. That was the first time she eclipsed sixty percent since her breakthrough WTA season back in twenty seventeen. Now early here on the year, she's only at fifty five percent, but she won seventy one percent of her first serve points in Abu Dhabi, which would be the highest number of her career. Of course, that serve is going to be critical for her because she's got to find a way to win some free points. Yes, she can be as physical as she needs to be but you know tennis half the game in tennis is making things easy for yourself so I think that's a really interesting uh, you know set of players as well there uh, who kind of float in between that can they make the finals could they potentially win it maybe maybe not is there any other player you would have in this category are we missing anyone on the women's side a potential to you know win this result win this event should we list every single name on the rankings yeah (laughs) that's the hard part right i'm trying to like i i i'm like looking through in terms of outside the top 10 i mean we didn't mention iga shviantek i just i you know the way she played through her first event and the way she played uh and or just in the fact that you know she just won her first grand slam i can't tell you off the top of my head i can't imagine the numbers over five the amount of players who followed up winning their first grand slam by winning a second one right away i i do think i do think it's either going to be osaka Barty, halep or one of those you know sabalenka or one of the people we've mentioned I mean, the reason we didn't mention Sviantek is because we're going for our debut winner here. And she's obviously already won one. So you definitely have her in the category. I mean, I think we're going to move on to that in a minute. but uh, And we've kind of crossed over into it. But the likely semifinalists outside of the top 10, I think you'd have her up there because, you know, she is with the current ranking system. She's number 17 in the world. And what I really appreciated about Sviantek after the French Open was, yes, she rolled through that event in extremely impressive fashion, but she acknowledged herself that it's about the mentality now and it's about the consistency because the level that she had at the French Open, we kind of saw bits of it from Sviantek before uh, we saw against Victoria as a ranker at the US Open in that first set. As a ranker, had to hit her peak to shirt Sviantek out and then Sviantek took another step up to get her level at the French Open. Uh, but she's acknowledged now that it's about consistency. And, you know, f- for a player that's still on their way up, I think she's doing a good job at, at keeping this in perspective, at taking things in her stride. And uh, from, from little quotes I've heard from her and stuff, it just seems that she's in a good headspace going into this tournament. And, yeah, it will be interesting to see 
you know, she's got a, a great game for the clay courts, you know, the traje trajectory of her shots, kind of the, the way she can go for her shots and still, you know, with the top spin, have that little bit of margin for error. See how well that works on the, on the hard courts of Australia. So that will be an interesting one to keep an eye on. And yeah, Sriontek would definitely be in that category of someone that could make the semifinal outside the top 10. As I warned you beforehand, I make the rules only to forget them halfway through. That's <laughs> half the fun. And by the way, as uh, I was talking, you want to know who won her uh, after won her second Grand Slam immediately after winning her first one? Naomi Osaka back in 2019. Mm -hmm. I was like, how can I forget that the only other person to do it in the 21st century in the women's game, Jennifer Capriati, who did it back in 2000 at the 2000 or 2001 Australian Open, 2001 French Open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean. I guess we'll get to the top 10 in this in a second, uh, the non-top 10 players. Let's switch gears now and talk about the men for a little bit because there are oh so many players in the men's game who have yet to win a first Grand Slam. It's, you know, everyone. I wonder why. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we, we can really relitigate that here as well. I don't think people have talked about it enough. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of candidates for this award, a lot of different directions to go. The obvious ones that are on everyone's list here, and they're all top 10 players. But, you know, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Berrettini. I think those are probably the first five. I, those are the first five on my list, of course. You know, as you can tell by this complexion, I'm a next gener myself. I will always, you know, I feel particularly <laughs> attached to the next gen. I'm ready to see them break through. I keep, I think they keep inching closer and closer with the year-end finals being indicative uh, of that fact of you know a is that oh well, i guess let's just start with a would those be your top five of the most likely to win their first slam at this event oh, i didn't think we had the liberty of five you know yeah, five makes again, it easy. i cheat <laughs> i i mean i try to be more disciplined because obviously you say you know they they are the the more more obvious names so i was kind of looking within them and seeing who would be the most likely of that group even to, to get close because um in my opinion, team was always streaks ahead. You know, he's pretty much at this point got himself level with Nadal and Djokovic. You know, the moment he beats one of them in a Grand Slam final, he's on a par. Uh, but with the other guys, it's more difficult because they haven't had that consistency of team. The front runner for me, and I, I was kind of leaning between two. I was leaning between Zverev and Medvedev. And the reason that I kind of pushed Tsitsipas to the side was because... He just hasn't had as many consistently deep runs. Yeah, he's had the odd upset, but um, hasn't been able to get another one off the back of that. And you really need to be able to produce, you know, one or two really big wins to get across the, the line and win a Grand Slam at the moment. Now, Zverev hasn't really done that. But the reason I might actually take him over Medvedev in this category, despite Medvedev's phenomenal form at the back end of last season, is because Zverev has done something that I don't think people really give him credit for. And it's the way that in best of five matches, he's able to drag himself across the line when he's not playing at his best. And the likes of Medvedev, the likes of Tsitsipas struggle with that. You know, when they're playing well, when they're serving well, when they're able to use the full length of the court, sometimes they look unbeatable. But the moment they drop off a bit and there are openings, they look a bit more fragile and you know Medvedev had brilliant form at the US Open team hung so tough and cracked him in the first set and then he went down in three sets Zverev on the other hand was criticized for playing ugly tennis for the majority of the tournament 
but then won two sets to love up on Dominic team in the final and team has uh, not team Zverev even has and has always had for me which has uh, made him stand out from a teenager he has that champion's mentality he knows when to peak I would not have put it past him to steal that title from team. And I would have felt like it was a steal because team, you know, had, had played, in my opinion, the best tennis at that event. Um, he'd had the consistency leading up to the event to be the next Grand Slam champion. But Zverev almost had it. And he almost had it with the big serves, with consistently moving up to the forecourt quickly. The one caution for me with Zverev is that outside of his top tier, there is a little bit of a step down to his next level. He kind of, I heard someone use the phrase, he goes from a phenomenal player to a fairly average player when he kind of drops down a level, but he can drag himself through. And just that, that grit and that determination, I think is a key asset when it comes to, you know, being one of those players to step up and win something as huge as a Grand Slam title. Yeah, he doesn't have um, big three wins over best of five sets, but he's beaten these guys elsewhere. And that gives him the confidence factor that is also required. So, you know, Medvedev, I think he's very much a contender, but I think just because of his ability to, frankly, win ugly, I would probably put Zverev out in front. I'm not sure about you. So let me just say again, I appreciate your discipline. I appreciate you sticking to the rules. I should have just said <laughs> there are no rules. Do what you got to do uh, because that's usually how it goes. Um, I will try and stay disciplined as well with my answers. You bring up for Alex Zverev his ability to problem solve. There is very much that one can criticize about Alex Zverev and the decisions he's made, how things have gone for him mm -hmm. over the past three to five years. One thing you cannot criticize unequivocally is his commitment and the work that has been done with Jez Green off the court. I mean, physically, the thing that's most impressive about Alex Zverev, and I say this, uh, you know, back when I talked about his game all the time because I was a big believer in just his tennis, I, I just, I'll continue to say he's the one next-gen guy who could win eight out of a 12 major stretch and I wouldn't be fundamentally shocked because physically I don't think we've ever seen anyone capable of doing the things that Alex Zverev can do on a court to be six foot five six foot six move the way he does the flexibility mm. the fluidity the power he can generate from these incredible positions on the court back when I was into his game those were the things I admired about him and like yeah the the, the volleys are not natural but they've gotten significantly better and you know again he was two points away from winning that U.S. Open final. He probably should have won the match after playing horrible for the entire tournament. And, like, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with everything you said about Medvedev as well. And what's so interesting to me is watching him play these ATP Cup matches kind of confirmed it, excluding when against Novak Djokovic because that just brings out a performance in anyone. Uh, Medvedev... I think he's actually better suited to play big hitters than he is to play a grinder like a Schwartzman or the guys who are just going to make a thousand balls like a Roberto Bautista Goot we saw at the Western Southern Open because he kind of gets frustrated and he kind of gets yes. impatient and just like loses his nerve there. And he, you know, the difference between him and the standard pu uh, push, he's not a push, you you know what I'm saying, uh, the mm. colloquial push, is that he's six foot six and can hit a 135 bomb down the tee and just like, oh, okay, I did that too. Um, but yeah, I, I in terms of the five names I listed, those are the top two for me as well. And by the way, ditto with what you said about Tsitsipas, I love Rublev. Can I do two, uh, it's not going to be two, can I do two minutes on Matteo Berrettini? 
for sure. Go for it. Okay. The case for Berrettini, and by the way, it's the easy case to make because of how good he's looked at the ATP Cup. It's going to be everyone's hot take coming out of the ATP Cup. It's not my hot take that he's going to win the title. But why I feel particularly good about him entering this season is you look at the track record, you know, he got a lot of flack for qualifying for the year-end finals in 2019. It's not his fault. He had the eighth highest amount of points. Like, he gets to go to the event. That's how it works. And you look at what he was able to do during that season for him to, you know, make the final and win on the clay in Budapest, make another final in Munich, win on the grass in Stuttgart. And he goes, I think it was 43-24 and 24 overall. The season ends, of course, the culmination with that semifinal at the U.S. Open. You know, he played 15 total matches in 2020. He was never healthy. So many different nagging injuries. And, you know, there's just, when you watch Matteo Berrettini, there's such low-hanging fruit in terms of the things he can improve in his game and why the ATP Cup was so encouraging is because you saw those those things he was he's able to improve on manifesting themselves already. The fact that he hit through more backhand returns, not the chip block return, but actually hitting through the two-handed backhand and really making a concerned effort to do that in rallies as well against both team and in his second match against Monfils. And what that shows to me is the practice court is now translating to match play. And if that backhand can become even average, you look at, you know, for Tennis Abstract, again, his first serve in his serving numbers he was I want to say I'm doing the quick math here sorry I'm looking at it in terms of percentage of points won on the first serve he finished the season third uh in uh, third overall in terms of uh points won on his first serve he finished third overall points won on his second serve he finished third overall the serve is elite the 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 returns are not he was 40th out of the top 50 players in percentage of return points won and if that backhand block return becomes even average with everything else he can do, with his feel at the net, his ability to slice that backhand and break his opponent's rhythm, and then his ability to just hit through any court, it's Rybakina-esque. It's Sabalenka-esque. I, you know, I just, I, I do think he, because of the power he can produce, he belongs in that category. Yeah, Berrettini, I rate so highly. I didn't know actually that he got a lot of stick for qualifying for ATP finals in 2019 because for me, he was a standout player that year. That was when I really started to take notice of him at Grand Slam level. You know, the serve and the forehand are ready-made weapons. So it is, like you say, about building up everything else around that. Return is key. Something I meant to mention was Verev actually. Is that something that he needs to improve on a bit more because Medvedev is still ahead of him in the return category. You know, both of them good movers for their heights have good reach uh, but Medvedev able to do more with that return and I think that, that is something that Zverev needs to step up over the course of the season his other weapons should be enough at the moment to kind of um, make up for that in some in some form I mean he's not got a terrible return by any means but you know like you say Berrettini noticeably making strides and I think that that's something that you know if Zverev is going to win Grand Slams which you know he should um, that's something to to pay particular attention to but no I like the mention of Berrettini and and thank you for mentioning him because he he did or has so far made an impressive showing at ATP Cup and I think you know when he played team team I didn't feel hit his stride but just the name that he's beaten there and the fact that he was able to use the length of the, of the court and show what he's been working on is a massive confidence boost and, and for someone like Berrettini with his talent 
confidence can go a long way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that Dominic team lost the match because team's going to team. It does matter that Berrettini <laughs> won the match because he did sure. look that much better. Um, and also, quick question for you, quick tangent, by the way. This is probably the most important question I'll ask you on this podcast. The Medvedev backhand return or the Zverev backhand return? Which one are you taking? Forget if if they were blank slates, if they were you know separate human beings, if you know if there was Joe Schmo and you just saw Joe Schmo with two different backhands, which are you taking? Oh, that is a tough question. That is very tough. I th- I feel like Medvedev can can be equally useful off both wings. Zverev obviously the backhand's better. Yeah. Um, that backhand up the line return can be a weapon yeah. for Zverev, but what about the consistency of it? You know, that's your other question. Yeah. So. Oh, backhand alone, I might take Zverev. Return overall, I'm taking Medvedev. That was but... that was the correct answer with the appropriate okay. nuance as well, for the record. Thank you. So, Thank yes, you. that was the correct answer. Well, we've talked about some of the first-time title winners. Now let's start getting really dark horsey. We'll get back to the non-top 10 players who we think we can make runs. But let's get to that third category of player now, the non-top 30 players that can make the second week. And let's get back to uh, the women's side here as well because, again, uh, it's a coin flip. Pick a name out of the hat. And honestly, you can extend that list probably to 75 names if you really wanted to. But my question to you, who are the women who stand out as outside the top 30, whether it's their form of late, something about their game, you think can make a deep run here at this Australian Open? Well, before I get going, I want to say that there is – a woman that's ranked particularly low that I actually have in the category above as someone to make a semi-final or beyond. Yeah, so hang on for that one because I won't be mentioning her now. I'll mention <laughs> okay. her in that category. A little tease, um, I like it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, uh, I, I have some high hopes for that particular player. But in terms of just generally players outside the top 30, I was looking down the list and I thought, boy, you could make a case for so many of these players, you know, players that have had success before and are out of form, players that are just coming through. I have been particularly impressed by Nadia Podoroska and how she's been able to capitalize on her French Open breakthrough because for those that don't remember, she was a qualifier, came through, uh, made quarters, made semis, and was showed a really versatile all-court game, you know, against Zvitalina, who she pretty much hammered, really. She, she showed great, tactical awareness you know and the ability to to put Zvitalina on the back foot there and for her you know she was plunged into the spotlight she's still fairly young she's 23 you know but she she was absolutely thrown from being a virtual unknown to to being one of the the leading names of that tournament and since then you know she she just very recently had a win over Petra Kvitova I think it was just the other day and you know, Kvitova had just come through a really tough match with Venus Williams. If you can beat Kvitova, you're doing something right. I know she can blow hot and cold. But Podoroska, I was just very impressed. I mean, she was not a player that I was familiar with ahead of the French Open. But just to see the kind of depth that was in her game and the way that she was able to handle suddenly being on a global stage like that, I thought was very impressive. And she's shown that she can transfer that form across surfaces. So she's ranked, I think, about 47 in the world at the moment. So I think in this particular category, she's definitely a name to keep an eye on. Elisa Mertens led the WTA Tour in wins, but who is the player in the top 50 with the most wins in 2020? That would be Nadia Podoroska, 39-6 and six overall. And yeah, it was just 
incredible ripping through the ITF circuit. I have her in my notes. I would screen share it with you. It's just, again, we're in podcast form, but it says <laughs> only talk about Podoroska if she brings it up because I talk <laughs> about her. I, I've talked about her quite a bit down the home stretch. I, I would echo everything you say. The one concern I have, the second serve can be a sitting duck for Nadia mm. Podoroska. And I think you look for her last season. I think she won like 48%, but it, it, that's a false number. That's a lot of ITA. Oh, ITA, excuse me. I'm in the college tennis mode. That's a lot of <laughs> ITF, uh, you know, stat padding there in that number. I think it, it does sit a little bit. I think the backhand sits a little bit. I think she can be overwhelmed by pace. But then, of course, she just beat Petra Kvitova. So what do I know? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, again, it's just a really good choice because it's someone with confidence when all of these players really haven't played that many matches. So I agree with her. I would throw her in that list of n- players outside the top 30. One other name uh, who I absolutely want to mention, someone who uh, probably has the win uh, on the WTA Tour, or I should say the upset of the these uh, Australian WTA Tour events, and that's Kaya Kanepi, uh, who quietly has been, I'm going to swear for the first time, outstanding down uh, over these last 52 weeks. She's 20 and 3. In her last 52 weeks. Now, again, there are a bunch of 25K titles during that stretch. But you look at who she's beating at these 25K events. She's beating, you know, players like uh, Maya Sharif, who has been really, really good at the ITF level over the past 52 weeks. She's beating Vera Zivanareva. She's beating uh, Buyakatsai, who we see as well making qualifying ones, runs. Uh, she got a win over Marie Buzkova. She has a win over Sinyakova. And she just, again, this is an eye test thing as well. She looks to be back in really, really good shape. And, of course, for Kanepi, she's 35 years old entering the season. Her peak ranking of of number 15 came back in 2012. But with confidence being key, with the fact that she did play, you know, as many matches as she did after the restart in August— I'm not saying she's going to win the event, but if the draw, you know, there's an upset in her section or it's a soft seed, it's like a Von Drusova on a hard court. Could I see Kanepi winning that match and advancing to the second week? Absolutely. I love that you mentioned her name and the, the background for it as well, because I'm a massive advocate for the lower levels of the sport and the ITF uh, level of competition being higher than people give it credit for. And even if that wasn't the case, you can't underestimate the results of picking up match wins at whatever level and of having that momentum. And Podoroska is a prime example of someone that was able to take that momentum, even at a different stage, a different level and capitalize on it at a grand slam. And, you know, Kanepi has the potential to do the same. She's also very experienced. You know, she's had upsets before on big stages. She's been in these kinds of situations and, you know, like you say, her current form and her history could combine to yeah for sure definitely take her into the second week like we say would have loved to have the draw here because that has a a big impact you know some of these non-seeders could draw serena williams in round (laughs) one and and that would be far from ideal but you know in terms of you know just looking at, at what we have in front of us the stats the form that kind of thing and just going off it theoretically definitely a contender there Uh, another serious thing in my notes i have in reality all of them 
in referring to the <laughs> non-top 30 players uh, that can make the second week. I'm going to cheat again. I want to throw three names at you. You just tell me who's most interesting, and we don't have to go too deep into them, but all players who have had some degree of success, or excuse me, three names. I typed the same name twice. Again, we're doing this very early here, <laughs> Thursday morning. So two names for you. Shelby Rogers, Jessica Pegula. Who do you feel better about entering this Australian Open? Because I also think those are both sneaky candidates who, if you see them, I mean, Shelby just did it in New York, but if you see Pegula do it as well, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah, Pegula had a great start, if I remember, because I commentated on one of the first matches of last season. She had Humble a great brag. start to the I like year. it. Yeah. Oh, well, sorry, that was not my intention. <laughs> no, no, I like it. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Uh, yeah, so she, one of the Australian Open warm-up events, I can't quite remember which, but she played Serena in the final and lost, but she was looking, you know, it's Serena. And she, and she played very well up until that point. Um, Pegula, you know, I'm sure many are aware, but she's had a lot of injury struggles, and um, which has halted her progress prior to the, the past couple of seasons or so. Uh, she's got a great strike on her, and you know, it goes back to this thing that I was saying about the time of year and, you know, good memories from last year may well feed into this year for her. Rogers, we saw some stunning stuff from her over the last couple of years with, you know, her comeback and, and the kind of results that she was able to pull off. It's hard to pick between the two because I actually see some similarities between the two in terms of playing style and what they're able to do on the court. Um, you know, just based on last year, I might say, you know, Pagula, bit of a dark horse here. But you could make a legitimate case for either of them, as you could with the majority of the tour. <laughs> yeah. Let's be real. No, I, I think you did it perfectly. Um, I, I would lean Shelby more than Pagula just because of the okay. serve. Because it's just – for you know, I got the chance to <laughs> – I'm going to humble brag here as well. Go I got on. the chance to call a Shelby Rogers match last summer in an exhibition she played, and she was just in such good shape and the confidence, the serve, the forehand. It's just, it works. It works. And so I think Pagula fit as a fiddle. Like she just, I think her game style is more malleable to a variety of opponents, but I think Shelby Rogers has a gear where she can just, like, if, if the matchups are right, she's just going to blitz her opponents and end up in the second week. So those are all uh, good examples. Hope all of you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Abigail Johnson, breaking down the dark horses heading into the year's first Grand Slam. Of course, be on the lookout for part two of this podcast coming out on this Great Shot podcast feed tomorrow, and be on the lookout for more of our Australian Open content on as uh, we again approach the start of the year's first Grand Slam. We will be covering each and every day's action, recapping it all on our mini break podcast, making picks each and every morning on our GSP ace of the day here on this segment so of course again be on the lookout for all of those on our website crackrackets.com and of course on your feeds wherever you listen to your podcast of course you're going to need the updates as there's so much action unfolding turn to twitter instagram facebook youtube we're here at crack rackets trying to keep you all updated on all the information you need uh you want to contact me directly i am at great shot pod shout out as always to our super producers max flickner and daniel westoff who have a 
of an editing job to do day in day out shout out as well to our friends at DraftKings just go to dkng.co slash cracked open and remember part two of this conversation coming out tomorrow but with that in mind for my wonderful guest Abigail Johnson our super producer Sligner and Westoff our friends at DraftKings and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin you know what we say hey great shot and we will see you all tomorrow thanks everyone Thank you.